Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking all about open data with Shada Badi, Managing Director of Open Data Watch, an NGO focused on monitoring and promoting open data in national statistical offices. Prior to founding Open Data Watch, Shada spent several decades managing global development statistics as the director of the World Bank's Development Data Group. Today, she talks to us about the release of her organization's Open Data Inventory, which is an index assessing the coverage and openness of official statistics in 187 countries. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Shada Badi now. Shada Badi, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure uh, to be with you, Tara. Thanks for the invitation. I thought we'd start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your work at Open Data Watch. It's an international NGO working to support and persuade countries and agencies to do better at making data more open and accessible. Our focus is on data that's needed to guide and monitor development or sustainable development. We have been in operation since 2014, only seven years, but I started working on data several decades before in 1977 when I joined the World Bank to help with economic and financial data management for a program that later became the World Development Report, WDR. I started as a summer temp I grew in that job as I found my passion in data and data management and supporting analysis of data. And I think I was at the right time, at the right place, as I kept getting promoted and I made in charge of a bigger and bigger functions. In 1995, I uh, I was made in charge of a large change management project, which created the development data group of the World Bank. I took over that, uh, that work, the function of running that department, and I left in 2013 when I actually maxed out on the number of years that I could be at the World Bank. Now, I'm curious, you know, you spent 36 years working at the World Bank and, and you, you, know, you served as director of the organization's development data group. Like, what persuaded you to not retire and actually co-found Open Data Watch? Good question, Tara. Thanks. Actually, in 2010, I had an exceptional opportunity to manage the World Bank's open data project, which was initiated by the president of the bank at that time, Bob Zelik. It was an amazing project, as most of the data that we used to sell before and make millions of dollars were made freely available and online. When it was launched, the usage of data skyrocketed overnight. It set an example for other agencies and countries to follow too. I learned a lot from helping the bank to open its data and and firsthand saw its complexities and that it will take a while before countries and agencies around the world could do the same. That's why I decided to start up the Open Data Watch as an independent NGO to monitor progress on open data and support countries through this transformation and actually realize the benefits of open data. 
Great. Now let's circle back to Open Data Watch. Like, talk to us about uh, your latest open data inventory. How long is, has this been running? What is it? And what are the latest results coming out? Uh, well, first, uh, uh, what is o- open uh, data inventory, which we call ODIN? Uh, it's an evaluation of uh, two aspects of data, coverage and openness of data, which is provided by the national statistical offices on their website. The inventory collects tons of data used to build, and we use it to build a profile of open data in each country and use as input to also calculate a score, a very famous score of how complete and open countries' data are from score of one to 100. For the coverage, ODIN includes 22 data categories grouped under social, economic, financial, and environmental. Openness is measured against international standards. In short, ODIN is like a knowledge base on open data for national statistical offices where users see how countries are doing and how they compare with others and what needs to change for them to be to do better. This is our fourth round of ODIN this year, and we're covering 187 countries. Marvelous. Now Why is it that the world needs to take stock of open data in this way? For me, open data uh, directly brings a lot of value, uh, social and economic value on its own to help governments with their daily work and daily decisions and servicing citizens, to help citizens to know what the state of you know, lives, their lives are, and assist with international development and research. So just tracking how countries are doing uh, on open data is really important and who is being left behind and what are the good practices. But also open data indirectly tells us a lot about some of the prerequisites. Uh, so, For example, um, transparency, accountability, good data governance, and data stewardship. So when you track open data, it also gives you a view of many good practices that countries should show that they, they have adopted and keep improving over time. And that's what we're trying to do with Odin. Can you talk to us about the actual results from this year's inventory um, from Odin? What, were there any surprising findings um, or anything interesting that you can tell us about? Lots of good stuff, Tara, there. I'll, I'll mention just a few, which, you know, which really have been important for me. One is that open data for official statistics is on the rise, which is a really good news. It, you know, it was not moving much the first year or so, but is really on the rise now, with countries demonstrating the greatest uh, progress to date. This is the Odin that shows the biggest progress. We see something like 75% of countries that have increased their score. So that's really wonderful news to hear. And then the other surprise is that the top performers used to be all high income countries, you know, the rich countries. But we see that uh, there are, you know, diversifying. The top list now has countries like Palestine, United Arab Emirates, and one country, one middle income country, Mongolia, has now arrived in the top 10 uh, of the countries in the world. And Slovakia has also joined the top 10 for the first time. So there you know, lots of good news of uh, countries that are not that rich, but they are really making a great advancement. 
Another surprise is that countries in Africa and Pacific Islands made the most significant improvements. So that's, again, that trend is very welcoming. And then another surprise is that openness score is still a challenge for many low-income countries where, when they, they need much more technical and financial support to increase their capacity. It's kind of obvious, but you know, we want to really link openness to also the capacity and the need for financial and technical support. But the last surprise which is also not very good news, but it's important to know is that we came up with, a, based on audience knowledge, we came up with a gender open data index. And the surprise it does is that scores on the gender categories are on average below those in the non-gender indicators, and hence the overall audience score. So that means that we, we need to do much better on opening up gender data. So, Tara, these are just a few of the many findings so far. And anyone interested, of course, I hope you will provide the website uh, in the podcast. And we invite um, you know, anyone interested to really dig in and send us comments, criticisms. We love those as well. And feedback. Brilliant. Now, you say that there's been a, an improvement in 2020. Do you think that you know, the state of open data is maybe improved because of the Cape Town Action Plan that was adopted in 2017 that was like encouraging national statistics offices around the world to embrace open data. Is that part of why you may have seen this improvement? Yes, I, I think that's very, uh, it's a very good question and that's a very important point. And when you have um, the global uh, agreements like the Cape Town Action Plan and is clear and then high you know, countries actually discuss it. It's very, uh, it's very transparent and uh, there's support provided wheels that comes with progress. So that's why we see from Odin that NSOs are making good progress. Um, and thanks to the work of many professionals, of, of course, in the national statistical offices and open data practices are getting stronger and more mature in many countries. Although we also see that the maturity levels are varied and there are still many data gaps. For example, I just mentioned gender is one of the areas that we really worry about the gaps in data. But overall, I'm optimistic that countries are uh, are either you know soon or you know very soon will really take the open data seriously and understand that it needs to be planned, it needs to be budgeted, and it needs to be cultivated, nurtured, like any program um, you know that you start up in uh, in a government office. I'm less optimistic on one uh, issue, Tara, if I may mention that, which is also an important part of the Cape Town Action Plan, and that is that countries need financial support. And we see that the aid for data, you know, international support and also domestic support for data is not increasing as much as needed. So that's a worry that we have, that even if the willingness is there, if the important standards have been set, a support system, monitoring systems are there, but we do need uh, financial support domestically and internationally for data and for closing this, uh, this data gaps. Now, 2020 has been the year of this terrible pandemic. And I'm just wondering, 
from Open Data Watch's perspective, you know, does a strong culture of open data have any connection with the country's ability to report on COVID-19 data and handle that? Well, we still have to do more research on this for hard evidence. But from what we see right now from the Odin, from the latest Odin result, and comparing the openness score of uh, Odin data with, uh, with COVID, with countries which are reporting COVID data, we do see that there is a relation there. Uh, but we, as I said, we still need to do much more um, research. But, you know, logically, if you look at it logically, when you have a good open data practice, that, that means that you have your house in order, that you have procedures in place for data dissemination, you have sorted out your legal and technical issues. So when it comes to emergencies like we have with COVID, then you can use those competencies and resources. But when the system is weak and there are low cap capabilities and capacities, then it's much harder. Big issues like uh, lack of data protections or data sharing policies, all the way to not having good terms of use for data or not sorted out your data stewardship, not having good website management systems for disseminating the data, then would stand in the way to publish and disseminate data in time for decision makers. We also see that in terms of relationships, as I was talking about, between openness and COVID data, we also see a relationship between when you have less data for SDGs, for example, for sex disaggregated SDGs data, you also don't have the capacity to produce uh, sex disaggregated data for COVID-19. So, you know, as, as you develop your systems and capacities for managing your regular time, then you, your capacity for managing emergencies will actually be tremendously helped. Right. I just wonder, um, what has this pandemic done for open data? Are, are there any silver linings? Yes, the, actually, the silver lining is, as you said, is the increased demand for data where you, you know, every one of us have a dashboard of data open on a computer. Every TV station shows, um, you know, data uh, on COVID and cases and death, you know, not really positive news, but you know, they, there is a lot of demand for data and the power of data and evidence. Many websites have seen large increases in data use. You know, I mean, Open Data Watch, we have just been, you know, we had to upgrade our, uh, our uh, website in many ways because of the demand and increase in data dashboards. And also we see that a lot of countries are putting more resources into data functions and data projects. So those are all part of the, the silver lining of the increased demand and increased response to meeting the data needs. Another silver lining in a sort of a way is that this has also shed lights on data weaknesses, you know, like lack of sex segregated data we were just talking about on COVID-19 in developing countries where we see, you know, only like 47% of the countries report on sex disaggregated data. And when you go to low income countries, they're much less. And also another weakness that we've seen is that we need to be able to link the data from different sources. Uh, to each other. For example, data from COVID cases and economic and financial data to better understand countries' vulnerabilities and their quick recovery post-COVID. What's the best way to encourage 
countries to be more vigilant about the data they share? And are there any incentives to motivate them and governments? Is it purely financial? Um, well, um, ideally, uh, countries should have data as a strategic pillar, as they do, for example, for infrastructure, you know, for building good schools or building a health and education system. Data is really should become part of that uh, strategy for development and improvement. Uh, it, it should be in the national plans and to it should have a budget allocated for it. But many countries right now don't. You know, if you look at national plans, you hardly see the word data or any budget for data. But agent, also agencies that, that support national plans should keep the subject of data and evidence-based policymaking you know, to encourage uh, strategic planning. And political discussions, partnerships, global initiatives such as the 2030 Agenda should have a data plan and demand regular progress report towards data. Another uh, incentive that would be very um, powerful is that large uh, aid funding mechanisms, uh, such as the IDA program, the International Development Association program that provides you know, billions of dollars to countries uh, to modernize their, uh, their governments and their uh, services to citizens, should, if possible, have data more prominent in those uh, allocations of budget. And maybe even allocate a small percentage of investment for data and report on that much more transparently. It's very difficult for us right now to learn about investments in data because the data is not very uh, very uh, well available. And then we have the SDG indicators. You know, there are two SDG indicators which are specifically on monitoring the capacity of countries on data and those those two indicators should become much more prominent right now they are you know they are not as uh, obviously paid attention to as i would have liked it and that's indicators 17.19.1 and 17.19.2 mm. and what is one misconception you'd like to clear up about open data that you continually come across Several, but let me, I'll mention one, and if you want, I'll mention it. <laughs> <Or> two. <laughs> one is open data by default. It's often misunderstood as everything must become open. And, you know, countries get really nervous when they hear that. And that's not what it's about. Open data uh, by default is about uh, having for countries to have what, we, what I call a negative list of what data sets for reasons of privacy or security or data quality issues are not to be made open, which implies that the rest and everything else should be open by default. So this is the misconception that I would really like to clarify that open by default is really a good practice that uh, countries should not resist and actually embrace and, and go for developing a list of what they cannot release, but then by, by default, everything else should be um, open. The other misconception is open data is for rich countries. And we just saw from the audit that we, uh, that, and the result that it's not true. And countries in lower uh, income uh, countries are, you know, are making very good progress. 
the, the last misconception, that's very important one, is that many people think open data is a state or is a project that they can just get to it, tick it off and relax. But it's not really true. Open data is a continuous uh, process and is a process of you know, modernization of systems and meeting uh, needs and demand and adapting and adjusting and you know, modernizing with technology, with new findings. So it's really a process to embrace uh, as part of uh, improving statistical systems. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, you know, as journalists, uh, we often are hunting for data in our national statistics office, where whatever country we are in, if we're covering something like that. But sometimes we come across missing data or old data. Um, and it's hard to tell stories when you don't have that. And I'm just curious, you know, since this affects us journalists too, particularly data journalists, um, what, what can we do to help? Well, how, how can we get governments to start sharing more and be a part of the solution, so to speak? I know that usually you journalists fall back on um, global databases, such as those at the World Bank and uh, other UN agencies and UN statistical division, SDG global database. So those are all very good sources of data. But mainly all of this uh, data, nearly all of it, but you know, except for a few exceptions, um, uh, that international organizations have actually come from national sources. So we really want to um, encourage the national sources to be much more used and to strengthen their system. So one thing you could do is uh, you know try to do more to promote uh, data sources that you find uh, you find are useful national data sources if you, so if you gone to the ghana uh, website and you found really good uh, resources maybe make you know make a special notice of the national data that you have used maybe even add a box from time to time to your articles uh, to say something about the data that you use and your experience in accessing it i call these stories about the data as opposed to stories from the data these forms of feedback are invaluable tara um, great idea to have a data uh, category in the work that you're doing right now in your program and involve people and bring uh, different data communities. So journalists will have a tremendously important role and both as users, but also as promoters of good practices and also feedback providers for us. And, you know, continuing our conversation to understand each other. <laughs> Absolutely. I just wonder if there's anything else that's coming uh, for Open Data Watch, besides this uh, Open Data Inventory, uh, well, we are, you know, as I said, um, Open Data is um, is a process that we go through, and we are maturing with the Open Data uh, uh, Open Data Watch. When I started working on Open Data around 2010, doing good was to make data free, accessible, showing transparency and accountability. But the level of ambition is now much higher. 
uh, on open data. We want to increase trust in data. We want safeguarding for data privacy. We want the state of art of data governance. And most importantly, we want to see data is used and has an impact to improve lives. So in ODW, we're starting a series of very exciting new research and monitoring uh, going beyond data production to data use and data governance. I call this actually uh, moving up the data value chain and getting much more to the side of data being used and uh, having an impact. As a result of our research, I hope that we do what we have done with Odin to have a set of tools for countries to use for improving their data use. A category of data, Tara, that we will continue to focus on very much is gender, is because it really is a category that is very important to me personally and to also needs a lot of support. Finally, I wanted to just say that we are really grateful to our funders, particularly the William Flora Hewlett Foundation, who's been giving us general opening support grants for many years, and then also we've just been replenished for the next three years, hooray. And also amazing partners and financial supporters like Data2x, IDRC Canada, and others. Oh, yes. We've had Data2x actually on the podcast. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see we're all in the same sphere. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Shada, for talking to us today. This was absolutely fascinating hearing uh, all the interesting things you're working on and, and how this can help journalists and data scientists in their work. Thank you, Dara. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.